Hello and welcome to Film Ireland Podcast. Uh, thank you very much for listening. I'm here with Wayne Byrne, uh, Irish journalist and book writer. Wayne, will you introduce our special guest that we have here today? We have Nick McLean Sr., who one of my favourite cinematographers of all time and a co-author of a book that's going to be coming out at the end of this year. And tell us why we're having this conversation. Nick, you've come over, all the, you've, Wayne has dragged you all the way over to Ireland. And you have a few dates uh, in Dublin, Cork, Kildare. Well, can we get those dates out of the way okay. first yeah. and we'll talk about them again at the end and then we'll get into a big conversation about Nick's all career. Right. So the first ones up are, we have two events on in Cork on the 8th of March. So we're going to be down in the Triscoll Arts Centre. Um, 6.15, there's going to be a screening of Short Circuit, followed by a Q&A with me and Nick, where we're going to talk about the making of the movie. We're going to talk about Nick's career. And then I think at nine o'clock, there's going to be a screening of Cobra. And we're going to be introducing that, which should be a lot a of fun. favourite of mine. Really? Absolute classic. <laughs> really? <laughs> well, in that fun kind of way. Yeah. Right. Um, so, Wayne, tell, tell me about how you met Nick. I think that's a good way to get into the conversation. Yeah, well, I was writing a book on Burt Reynolds, who was, you know, one of my favourite film stars of all time, probably my favourite. And I thought, you know, if we're going to be talking about the making of all these great movies that he did, you can't not have Nick McLean in there because, you know, you're so crucial to his, his career. Such a long association, almost 40 years, so many movies tv shows and i got in contact with nick and at one stage we were we were talking and i said to nick you know he has all these great stories i said why is there no book on your career there should be several tomes on your career nick mm-hmm. and he said you know if, if anyone is was ever going to do it he'd like it to be me which i thought was absolutely very sweet and i said let's do it was he good at courting you nick Did he it was take great long? in fact just before we started talking about burt reynolds Another friend of mine said, you got to, because at these lunches, I usually come up with some good stories. He says, you got to get a book written on you, you know. So I, it was in the back of my mind. So after I, you know, was talking to Wayne and enjoyed him as a filmmaker, I thought when he proposed it, I said, let's do it. Let's, you know, and it's it's amazing the stuff that I'd forgotten that he brought back, you know, just old memories and stuff. And well, does yourself, you have a son who's in, uh, who's a camera op as well. Yes. And a stepfather and grandfather who are also part of this That's legacy. That's correct. My stepfather, Fred Jackman Jr., was pretty well-known cinematographer. And my grandfather was the first or second um, president of the ASC, the American Society of Cinematographers, which is pretty good. And I used to actually hang out at the clubhouse, the ASC clubhouse, when I was like 10 or 12, you know, just with all, amidst all these cinematographers. So it was kind of in my blood uh, also. So do you say the bug was pretty early? The bug was, but I kind of wanted to be a professional athlete. So I kind of went that route. At high school, I got like scholarships to any college I really wanted to go to. So I broke it down to USC, which is, you know, in Southern California and Notre Dame. And they took me back to Notre Dame. And, uh, you know, you couldn't have a car. There was no girls on campus. The lights go out at nine o'clock. So I went to USC. But if it came out that I realized that I wasn't as good a football player as I thought I was, and my grades were going down, and one of my teammates said, there's a great class in cinema, cinema department. It just started up. So when I took that class, I knew within about a half an hour, that's what I wanted to do. So then I went back to my stepfather and, and started the process. Which was? I thought because of the nepotism, I'd get right in. But because of the union, you had to have 30 days in one year, and, and every union member had to be working first. So uh, practically the first day, I asked my stepfather. The next day, I got a call. 
but I only got nine days in that year. And you have to have 30 days in any year. The next year, I got one day. And I was, you know, I loved it so much then, after working nine days that, you know, I couldn't wait for the call. And then I get one one day the next year. And then the following year, a friend of mine knew I was trying to get in. He had a show going to Stockton. So he said, let's just put your name on the list and see if we can get you in there. And luckily, there was a guy in the union by the name of Gerald McLean. My first name is George McLean. So the union thought I was Gerald McLean. And they didn't balk it. And I got my 30, I probably got 40 days. They had to, they had to take me. So I just lucked out. One hundred percent, and you needed it, despite absolutely the, the, yeah. the, the legacy there. Yeah, and what was that? again another big break for you? Probably was meeting Vilmos Sigmund. Absolutely, we were we were doing. I was working at Universal, and two movies were up. They needed second assistance, and one was for Hitchcock, and the other one was for Jimmy Goldstone, and they, which was in Santa Fe, New Mexico, which is a lot of altitude. And they wanted a young guy that could get around pretty good, like I used to do. <laughs> And um, so I got to Red Sky at morning, and I knew I had known Jimmy Goldstone, the director. And all of a sudden, there's this little Hungarian guy that could barely, barely speak English. And a lot of people were making fun of him. You know, he couldn't speak too well. And I just kind of befriended him. You know, we just, I was nice to him. The other guys were kind of picking on him, really. But he's, you go to dailies at night and see the lighting change from the old, you know, bright Hollywood style. And he would, you know, it looked like, real life you know you, you thought this guy's going to make it you know so it was it was kind of fun and tell me well just to get you back in the conversation because you've been quiet for so long <laughs> what, what, what did you spot in in uh, Nick's work that really kind of spoke to you as being part of what obviously you got into his work through Burt Reynolds initially yeah well there's <clears throat> the academic side of it in terms of just the great cinematography the great film studies worked on so I'm looking at it from a film history point of view as well and a film criticism point of view you know because I'm in the book I'm going to be talking about the the movies and their their place in film history and because Nick has such a huge such a huge place in film history because of all that work you know so there's there's that angle of it as well but also it's the personal side of it it's the just the, the relationships that you've had with all these directors and actors you know it's such a huge thing for me because I never wanted to write a truly just an academic book you know I find academic books can be very dry so in any book I do I always try and find a kind of a personal angle on them and there's there's more than enough here because he's had those great relationships with Hal Ashby Burt Reynolds people like that you know when we were first about halfway through the movie and Red Sky and Morty Vilma said to me he said I just got offered a movie in Canada would you be interested in going with me he says kind of an unknown director I said what's his name he says, Robert Altman. <laughs> and See? Altman was a nothing. You know, he, uh, MASH, I think, was just coming out about halfway through the movie. So Altman became this huge star. But nobody, you know, when we were going up there, nobody had heard of him. And then the lighting he did on McCabe and Mrs. Miller was like unheard of. And again, if anyone does not film, that film is snow. Oh, yeah. So that's a huge challenge. Yeah. However, a lot of it, the, the falling snow is fake. It's, it's lab. That's because we got, I think, four feet of snow in one day. It was like you know, it was like you guys had yesterday yeah. here, you know. But it was it was really a lot. And then they had to when the snow actually the storm went away, we had to augment, you know. And you can kind of see it when you know where it is that yeah. the what the lab put in there. Again, Altman's style might seems a bit freewheeling to people. You kind of look at it kind of a, in a relaxed way. It seems to just make itself. I'm 
don't think that's true. What were the challenges for working with someone like Altman, um, for instance? Altman was you just, you had to be on top of everything, you know, and he's and even like what you're saying, he was like new innovator. You know, in the old days, you couldn't overlap and sound, you know, if you overlapped it, cut, cut, let's do it again because you're stepping on the other guy. Altman loved it. He said, no, that's the way real life is, which is true, you know. So we could overlap and stuff like that. And I think the challenges with with Vilmos and Altman, they love long lens stuff. And for an assistant cameraman, that's really, really tough, especially with no light. You know, yes. it's a big a big deal with zooming and focusing. It's it's you gotta be right on the you know, you got inches, you know, to uh, get a sharp focus, you know. So I think that was part of it with Altman. It's interesting that you could say like yeah, he loved his sound, he really understood sound beautifully. Yeah. And he also developed a few systems of recording uh, for that film. I think it came uh -huh. out most. Really? Wasn't that true, Wayne? You can back me on that? too sure now about them. Yeah, well, just because oh, he, he was able to overlap because he made sure he yeah. recorded each voice yeah. individually. Yeah, and they would they would put mics all over the place, you know, and that was like the yeah. first time, you know, when a guy walk away from the mic, you kind of hear it go down. It, yeah. it was real, you know, he was... And that he was, became his style yeah. and his signature, yeah. wasn't it? yeah. Was he also creating a big freedom for the actors in, in that shooting style? Absolutely. And a great story about that was Warren Beatty was just the opposite. He was like, he had to have everything 100% correct. And one night, one Friday night, we're all wanting to get off, you know, for the weekend. And here's the scene. He's in a hot tub and his arm, and he's drunk, and his arm is up on the hot tub. And his arm drops in the water, the water splashes in his face and it wakes him up. That's the scene. We were there at midnight, still doing it. And Warren would get out and do push-ups and do you know, Altman left on about take four. He says, I got what I want. Yeah. <laughs> you guys go do what you want to do. <laughs> I've heard that story. Yeah. Really? Yeah. It's a true story. <laughs> so I don't think you walked with uh, Ron much after that, even though he made a fantastic I did do it. Actually, I did. I did Heaven Can Wait. Oh, Warren. you did. You did. Yeah. All right. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Well, so what was that experience like? Because that was Warren directing. It was Warren and Buck. Uh, Buck was one of my tennis partners, Buck Henry. It was oh, an incredible, wow. incredible, incredible guy. But it was okay. It was okay. Once Warren got the confidence in me, then he tested me a lot at the start with stuff. And I remember one time he was coming down the stairway and he had a scarf around his neck and the scarf wrapped around this thing and ripped it off his deal. And he went out of the room like that and he came back and he said, did you cut the camera? I said, no. He said, oh God, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you know. So, you know, I mean, normally when something like that, you'd cut, but I never cut unless they said cut, you know. Which is, yeah, yeah, that's, that's right. sacrosanct, isn't it? Exactly. <laughs> and that's two films, a yeah. completely different style. Heaven, yeah. Heaven Can Wait and The Cape of Mrs. Miller. And this is the, the one guy who's working on them. And yeah. that's the great thing about, about <clears throat> your work as well, is that you, you cross all these different styles and aesthetics and genres right. as well. Right. You know, which is, again, it's interesting for me as a film historian. to and, and, well, and do you have a favourite? Would you just say the work relationship you look for or a kind of film that you like to shoot? I think most of all, I just, I just usually took what I was offered. If it was a good deal and it was good people, I didn't pretty much think about that too much. I, I, uh, if the people were good and the, you know, the script was good, I just took it and see what, see what happens. You know, you pretty much never knew what was going to happen anyways, you know. And with Bert, obviously, uh, you met Bert through Cannonball too, was it? No, I met Bert on Sharky's Machine. I was the camera operator on that. And what happened with that is there was a, when I the first day I met him, he I used to do a lot of aerials, um, helicopter stuff. So Bert had this shot that he wanted me to do. It was impossible, you know. He had to. In fact, I didn't want to tell him, but I said, if you want to do this, 
part of it. We got to be flying backwards at this deal. So I talked him into doing it a different way. But at the end of it, we got right next up. It's a round building in Atlanta called the Peachtree Plaza. There's an outside elevator. And Bert wanted me to catch it with like a 50 millimeter lens and take it all the way up to the top until the uh, elevator opened. And that was going to be his cut. So um, it was really difficult because the winds were blowing like crazy. And with this 35 millimeter, whatever I had, that I had to have because the amount of light, I couldn't zoom or anything like that. The helicopter had to be right next to the, the, the blades were within 10 feet of the building. Wow. So Bert went with us for the first three or four. Ricky <laughs> Holly. Ricky Holly was, was the pilot who died on, uh, was one of my best friends. And he died on runaway train as a helicopter pilot. Oh, okay. Yeah. Just a great, great guy. But he was an old Vietnam pilot. And um, he was incredible. That's all I can say. I did a million shots with Ricky that were. So you, do you do you fly? I do. I've actually soloed, but I'm the kind of guy that still runs out of gas in my truck, so I don't <laughs> I don't figure on pilot Those material. Those things mean nothing to you, right? <laughs> e energy, <laughs> right? Yeah, I always thought, you know, I and I, but one of the biggest thrills of my life was soloing. That was incredible. When the guy finally steps out and you you got it, you think, geez. Do so, I want this? <laughs> so, so you kind of did a lot of stunt. You, you, you were a great st- uh, for a stuntman uh, filmmaker. As a cameraman, you, yeah. you, you got the athletic attitude, right? And as you told me earlier on, you've been mountain biking and wrecking yourself yes. on mountains. Yes, you can't blame the mountain. So <laughs> right. that, that kind of really appealed to that hydrenaline attitude of yours. It absolutely did. I loved helicopter work. I actually did the aerial unit on the right stuff too. The air to air. I only watched it two weeks ago. Oh, really? I yeah. did all that. You it's know, an amazing that, film. Yeah, it really is. And and that stuff is the aerial stuff in that film is phenomenal. Yeah, I have. I don't think I've seen anything in a in a film with the the advantage right. of CGI right. that has that visceral energy. I had a B twenty five where I have to crawl down the the whatever the fuselage, mm-hmm. and they in the B twenty five in the war they had that plastic deal with the gun. Well, there was no plastic there. There was no gun. It was just ten thousand feet, and I hook up and I get right to the edge there. I had an Aeroflex. And then I had communications with the F-104 pilots, or F, yeah, F-104, and I'd tell them to rotate, and they'd be about 3,000 feet below me, and they just, you know, hit the afterburner, and sh- before I could zoom back from a 250 to a to 25, they'd be gone past me. They'd have, you just see the, the bottom of the uh, jet in your, in your uh, lens, so it was really, really pretty cool and it was amazing looking so far but did those shots it did amazing. come out real good and the toughest shot in the right stuff for me was we had to fly a Learjet into the afterburner of a F-104 and I had like a 75 millimeter on it so we had to be right next to the plane not right next to it but probably within 25 or 30 feet and the pilot our pilot says you know when he hits that afterburner it's going to knock you right out of the air <laughs> so we he hit it and we had we were stable for you know you see it turn red and um, it kind of knocked us out of the air. And I thought, phew, thank God, it's over with. And then the, the pilot of ours, they said, we got to do it again. I didn't, <laughs> he had a monitor up there. So let's go back and do it again. How many times did you do it? We did it two, I think. Okay. Two or three, yeah. It's not yeah. one you want to be doing on, no. on your fifth go. I worried about that. I worried about it for a week. So, so, but, so Bert obviously was impressed with what your ability to problem solve that for right, start. Right, right. And he knew what kind of guy you were. Yeah. Also, you're both ex-footballers. Let's Ex- face it. That's, that, that was that the connection helps. at the start. Yeah. Because he played for Florida State and I played for USC. So uh, 
So I yeah, see. which are kind of rivals, but yeah, we kind of respected each other through uh, the football. That really was the key, actually. It's funny Hollywood seemed to rely on ex-footballers a lot back yeah. in the sixties and the seventies to get some really good actors. Yeah, right. Jim Brown. Yeah, John Wayne. Bur- Burrell, yeah. John Wayne. Yeah. Yeah. To get the work yeah. done. <laughs> yeah, John Wayne played at so, USC. So from that, you went to your first uh, work as a cinematographer at DLP was um, uh, Stroker Ace. That's correct. And how I got that, and I was telling uh, Wayne earlier today. Bert and I were in a room doing a thousand millimeter lens on across this hotel and they were lighting over there. So we were just talking about football and stuff like that. So as he was leaving the room, he said, um, we was talking about um, deliverance. And he, he, I said, well, you know, Vilmos made me a camera operator. And he looked right at me. He says, well, I'm making you a DP, the cinematographer. And he walked out of the room. Wow. That was it. And at the time, I was dating Sally Field's sister. I think I told you this earlier. And I went back and she said, he doesn't lie about stuff like that. And six months later, there's a script. And that doesn't happen to a, a camera operator. I mean, to be promoted on a big feature, like a Burt Reynolds feature. So, in that way. In that way, it was just like, I was to- I totally lucked out. It was... Um, what was that experience like for you? It was scary as hell. I, I, I could do it now probably with my eyes closed because <laughs> it was 80% exterior and it's hard to screw that up and some interior stuff like that. But every day was a nightmare waiting for the lab reports to come back and stuff like that. But I think I knew more than I thought I knew. So I, you know, I was, I was doing pretty, I could, I could a lot like of car chases, a lot oh, of high yeah. technical stunt work. In it. Yeah. Yeah. There always is around Bert. And of course, Needham was the director and uh, he loves, you know, he loves stunts. That's for sure. Uh, was that a, after Smokey? That was, wasn't it? it was a few oh, it was, yeah. 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 Smokey yeah. was 77. Strawberry right. was 83. Right. And um, you've worked with another big thing you did with Bert was that he got he convinced you to do Evening Shade, which was his first foray into sitcom and I want, television. I absolutely did not want to do Evening Shade. Um, I wanted to stay doing movies, but I had just turned about 50. And Bert, how could I turn him down? You know, he said, you know, you you know, Actually, he didn't ask me. He kind of told me I was going to do <laughs> Evening Shade. And within about two months, I, I said, this is for me. You know, it's I love doing movies, but I'd done so much for such a long time. And this was so easy. I hate to say it, but it was easy. And I could do I'm films. supposed to say that. I, yeah, I could do films in the, in the summertime. So I thought this is great. So I think we did a hundred and some Evening Shades. Would you agree then... We- that kind of uh, the TV scenario, once you've set it up and you know where everything is, it's simply a matter of replicating it? It's pretty easy, and unless you have, like, swing sets or something or have to go outside or stuff like that. In fact, I was t- taking a meter reading one time in the, the main set of Evening Shade, and I went out there and I said, five, six or something. And the guy said, is that the same as three years ago? I said, yeah, it is. <laughs> Yeah. But actually, the way to answer this, you were saying about Evening Shade that it was a benchmark in terms of bringing a more filmic look to yeah, the sitcom. It did, yeah. Aesthetically speaking, I mean, it's one of the things that stood out to me watching it was, here's a sitcom in 1990, and you have steady cam shots in there. I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a, a scene in an episode where there's a high school reunion, and it's a single shot which, which follows Bert <clears> around the gymnasium, and he meets somebody and they have a dance but the camera is circling them you remember right. that Nick? yeah of course and that just stood out that's quite to me. extravagant for, yeah that was for, the for first time a steady cam ever came into a sitcom yeah. or you know you just, anything like that it, but bert would let us do it you know? yeah just for me it just mm-hmm. I, it, it stood out as something that yeah. i'd never seen before in right. a te- television sitcom like that you know and i just thought god nick is 
changing the cinematic landscape of television as well as all that great stuff he did in the 70s and 80s. Now he's now he's he's just doing I, all this. I could all, also dump the light as much as I wanted because Bert would back me. If you had Bert backing you, say, yeah, you know, they might say it's a little bit too dark, but it's it's actually a little more artistic and looks good to us. And, um, you, you know, then we started getting yeah. known for that stuff. BL Striker. Another, yeah. well, they're, they're TV movies, but I mean, they're so stylish. Yeah. And, you, you know, you, you had some great directors on that as well. Fraker even directed the first episode. Hal Needham did an episode. Bert did several. I directed one too. That's right. That's High, right. Yeah. High Rise. Yeah. 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 Which is one of the best ones. And, you know, um, in that one I directed, I, Bert was supposed to be come into this building and save the day, but I wanted to put a mask on him. That way we could use a second team. And let Bert have a few days off, so he loved that. <laughs> so we did that, you know, the, when I we doubled it. Yeah, right. <laughs> Give the boss a few days yeah, off. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So most of your television stuff at that, at that point was with um, Bert, but uh, it, it did lead to Friends as well, which is a big deal because it's slightly different in that it's a multi-camera show. Was it even shade multi-camera at times? Yes, it was yeah. four cameras okay. at all times. So except it, it, Friends was no stretch for you, really? It was not, and I was doing – it was kind of my – I did four years of civil, which was all girls. And I was kind of getting known for that. And then my career was starting to, to fade a little bit. So okay. I took, which happens, you know, and I took this, or I was offered this series called Veronica's Closet. Kirstie Alley. Yeah. Kirstie Alley. So I was doing that. Luckily, the same producers, and, and we were stage 25 at Warner Brothers, and they were stage 24. So one day their cinematographer didn't show up for some reason. They came over and they said, well, you check the lighting. And they kind of liked the way I worked. And so at the end, I went and did like four of them. I did both. I'd just walk across the street and do. And at the end of the year, they offered me the show. And I, I did the last hundred episodes or something like that, which was fun. Someone didn't turn up for work. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Because <laughs> it can be lucky. That happened for you twice. Though. Yeah, right. Sure. <laughs> but yeah. Well, what do you think the artistic this about art not just crap but the art of what the cinematographer brings it's not that just that you light everything up so everybody can see what's going on you are bringing the mood to it you absolutely have to bring the mood you know when, once you read the script you kind of get in your mind what how you want to light it how what you want to look like or what it, it wants to look like and where it can be real real dark in fact Vilmos always said also you should always have something really really bright in the frame and really, really dumped, really black, which is a pretty interesting concept for his compositions. He always tried to line up. And being the camera, camera operator for Vilmos, I, you know, when, once he would line up a shot, I'd be the next guy to look through it. So I kind of, I think I took after his composition, which isn't bad. You know, he was quite an artist. So I kind of got that feel. How of, did of, he work? With Hal Wallace, considering Hal Wallace was the old school of Hollywood kind of thing. Hal yeah. Wallace never said a word. He just sat in there. He had a big rocking chair in dailies. And he he was the one that, that uh, produced the first where I met Vilmos. But when you start looking at the stuff, you know, and it looks real instead of, you know, overlit old Hollywood style. And you think, Jesus, you know, that he never said much, but it was you could tell. That everybody was was getting on to Vilmos, you know. He had brought this whole new. He and Lazo Kovacs, yeah. they came together from Hungary, so you you could see that people were starting to like yeah. this and that. And we got offered, you know, a bunch of stuff after that. Did some real good films. And Lazlo had came along and you know Easy Rider in the yeah. last movie, and that, that was that yeah. in itself. I mean, yeah. 
the, the movies that you and Vilmos were working on, and then Laszlo, just it changed the cinematic landscape. It was the new Hollywood. Yeah, yeah. between between. Don't, don't mean they're, they're, the copycats are the, uh, everywhere after right. that. Yeah. One good story about Laszlo is we were at Laszlo's house one night. Laszlo, Vilmos, Peter Yates, who um, direct, did Bullet. And Bullet, Peter Yates wanted to hear. Who lends Bullet? Fraker. Fraker. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but but um, he wanted to know um, what the escape from Hungary was from Vilmos and, and Laszlo. So we're getting, we got the, the wine out and we're getting a little loaded and the stories are coming and there's a knock at the door and they open the door and Spielberg. So Spielberg doesn't know what we're doing. So he comes in, sits down and he hears what the story is. He said, wait a minute, I got to go get my tape recorder. <laughs> so nobody said anything. He just, you know, yeah. he said, you know, he came back in and away he went. But the stories were magnificent of these two guys that were kind of changing Hollywood, you know, and they loved operating their own camera too, which was was unheard of and ununion like and stuff like that. But luckily, once I became Vilmos's operator, I said, I'm not going to do it unless you, you know, because it was everything. technically trouble for them if the, the wrong person saw them doing it. Absolutely. No, it was yeah. a fine. It was yeah. a giant fine. Yeah. And uh, is it more accepted nowadays or is it still? I think it is a little more accepted now. In fact, I think Spielberg operates his own camera um, oh, most of the time. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. But look at what these guys were doing as well in Sugarland Express. You know, capturing the lens flares and using that as an artistic device, right? Which is now a thing, you yeah. know, in cinema. Yeah. Well, Laszlo again wasn't he? He everyone was slagging him off for Easy Rider. Yeah. Yeah. For right. all these ter- yeah. all those old school right. guys were looking at. Flare. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah. yeah. And, and now no one thinks about it. Everyone goes looking yeah. for it. And then J.J. Abram drowns this right. Drowns flare right. Thing. Yeah. That he's done in post production. <laughs> right. I actually got a memo from the camera department at Universal one time. Said anybody that's responsible for a flare. You're liable to get fired, and now you know. Two or three years later, they're looking for it. They're looking for it exactly. Yeah. But again, it's it's just a show. You see it used in the right way, and right. in the wrong way. Exactly. It's like any exactly. aesthetic. Right. Exactly. Um, anyone frame break. If you yeah. break the rules, do it properly. Exactly. <laughs> well, there's one particular shot in the Sugarland Express. It's near the end of the film, and it starts out on a close up of Goldie Hawn, and it pulls back to the car traveling along. And there's a, there's a couple of strands of flares there. Yeah. And it's just one of the most beautiful shots. Yeah, in that whole she's period. all backlit. In that yeah. Story, yeah, and that film itself is kind. of, I always felt it was inspired a little bit by Easy Rider, by the attitude. It probably a lot, was. A yeah, a lot of films came yeah. around yeah. after Easy, like Vanishing Point, right. um, and then that one a bit more yeah. kind of like the family version almost. Yeah, right. It was based on a real, a true story. It was a true yeah, story. Roughly, yeah, yeah. In fact, we saw the the pictures of the the car when it got um, um, at the end when it got all shot up, and Stephen bought that car. It's called twenty three eleven in the movie. And Stephen has it in his garage to this day. So I think I haven't seen him for a while, but you know, I still. You'll see, you'll sell it when he needs the money. Yeah, right. <laughs> Just to, to bring up some other directors that you worked with, and I'd like to go back to Burt again. Because uh, right. obviously we talked right. about some, But you also worked with Hal Ashby. I loved Hal Ashby. T- yeah. t- tell us yeah. about your experience with Hal Ashby. Well, I did he- being there with, with Hal Ashby, and um, I, th- I think we didn't have through the lens video in those days. So Hal re- relied on me, everything. You know, oh, I know we actually did have uh, through the lens, but he was just like this kind of guy that. Did he generate a lot of stock when he was on set? Stock? As in, like, sorry, a lot of film. Oh, yes. In fact. Because he was an editor. And he was. He came Uh, from that background. Exactly, exactly. And he did Thomas Crown Affair, I think, the first Thomas Crown Affair. But we would have dailies. I never did dailies like this before. We, in in the basement of that mansion, there was a bowling alley. So we had our daily set up down there. 
but I've never seen it before. He'd go A reel, B reel. He had two projectors and he'd look at the first master instead of going through eight masters or something like that. He'd say, Billy, just go to the, you know, the next reel. And then he'd reload this camera. Yeah. So we'd get all the good, you know, the, we know exactly what it looked like. We didn't have to go through all this. He stuff. was editing. In his he was editing. Exactly. That's yeah. what he was doing. And my last story about um, Hal Ashby was he asked me to do a camera on the Rolling Stone concert. And um, so we went up, went up there and Caleb Deschanel was the cameraman. And halfway through, through the, the uh, earphones, they say, Hal Ashby wants to talk to you. So I said, um, so I worked my way back and we had a, for one of the first trucks with monitors that through the camera monitors. And I go in and Hal had an IV in his arm laying a, in a chaise lounge. I said, what the hell? He says, when I get around the stones, I party too hard. <laughs> and uh, then he said, will you take me home after this? Because he lived close to me. And get me away from Keith. Yes. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> Dangerous for your health. Yeah. But he was excellent. He's just a great guy. And also Schlesinger, is it Schlesinger or Schlesinger? Schlesinger. I think John Schlesinger, way. Marathon Man is a film you worked on as well. Absolutely. I, I love that man. He, Again, he was, William Goldman, writer. Yeah. Did, was he yeah. hands-on working with Schlesinger on that film? I didn't see much of him, but, you know, um, Sir Lawrence Olivier was in it, Dustin, and, and it goes on and on. Conrad Hall shot it, yeah. which was, he's like one of the best of all mm -hmm. time. So it was, a, it was a great time. We really had a, a good time. Did some good stuff, too. Uh, did you find it, again, the work relationship with Connor Hall would have been more formal, being of, of the older stock? The older yeah, he was He was kind of, um, he was from the old, but he was kind of bendable. He was, his lighting was incredible too. So he was right along with the other guys with low lighting. And, and I have lunch with Conrad every day for two or three months or as long. And every day at lunch, he'd say the same thing. We'd go to Daly's first, then to lunch. He said, I've lost it. I don't, <laughs> I don't have it anymore. And I'd be looking at the stuff of God. And you, absolutely gorgeous. You yeah. worked with Conrad, with Richard Brooks on Looking for Mr. Goodberg, did, didn't you? Yeah. Which is stunningly yeah. Yeah. shot. Right. And the light, you know, if you've ever seen the last yeah. scene in that movie. Yeah. yeah. It's yeah. Just, that was a strobe deal, too, yeah. that we didn't know what was so, going to come out. You know. Diane Keaton and a young Mel Gibson, I yeah. think, floating around the front there. Yeah. But, um, or is it Richard Gere? Richard, Richard Gere. Richard Gere. Right. Um, I don't know why I said Mel Gibson. But yeah, um, I can't believe that he would say that. This guy who'd done so much. He, he said. security. All he wanted, he had a, he had bought a book. He had the rights to some book that that's all he could talk about was directing and never got to do it. But what I, I don't know whether you know it, but Conrad Hall's dad wrote Mutiny on the Bounty. And when I went to Tahiti, I visited their house and Conrad was like the most renowned American that lived in Tahiti or off and on. And he had his own island there too. Oh, wow. Little island, yeah. But yeah. Well, he was busy losing it. He was right. getting enough money to the right. Island. Right. <laughs> <laughs> he was He was great. He was just terrific. So of, of your own work, cinematographer in cinema, what is the favorite film that you worked on? I would say the one that looks the best was City Heat with Bert and uh, Clint Eastwood. But... Um, Again, that's a, a 1930s Yeah, set 30s, 40s, something like and that. And yeah. it is a beautiful looking film. Yeah, it came out really good. A, in fact, it's one thing that sticks out for me most is that how lush it is. Really? It's a gorgeous film. And it was right, I think, when this high-speed film came out, so I could dump the light. So I was keying it like five-foot candles, which was unheard of in those days, you know. they were The old-time guys were keying it 200-foot candles. And uh, and I got... That was a big deal at times. What, what year was that? It was 84. 84. 84, yeah, that's about right. So, yeah, and I had pretty control, good control of the lab and, you know, I'd get to go in and see what I've done before I go back to, we worked a lot of nights on that thing. So I kind of knew where I was photographically. In terms of 
the director on that film. It was originally supposed to be Blake Edwards, and then it became Richard Benjamin. How did you find working Richard Benjamin, considering he had only done two films? He was a yeah. he was a very very nice guy, but Clint really directed it. He was when anytime Clint's on the set, you know he's the director. That's all because he he really knows it. But but Richard was great, and and yeah. we had a lot of fun with him. Yeah. And but really, Clint was the guy that called the shots on it. You know. Didn't Richard Benjamin do my favorite year? Yeah, he did. Yeah. He did. Yeah. And he's a, he's a he's a great guy too. He's a nice a, actor as well. Yeah, right. Exactly. Um, how does that work though? When you got the direct, the director trying to look like they're doing their job, and the actors just I think before you get on something like that, you know it. You know. Yeah. So if you take the job, you know. Or he, I don't know whether he and Clint talked, but yeah. they probably did. And, and that was a very unusual project for Eastwood at the time, wasn't it? Because yeah. the broad comedy thing was just starting with him. Yeah, I don't think he'd done the Which Way movies. It by that he did. Yeah, yeah, he did. Okay. But that's a, it's it's a in the Eastwood canon. It's a strangely stylish film because he doesn't tend to shoot films like that very right. often. You know, overly stylish films. You know, he's kind of known as an economical director. Exactly. But very few of his films are you know have that very distinctive looking for style. Cl- for Clint, you usually rolled on the rehearsal yeah and many times you printed the rehearsal yeah <laughs> and that I was it heard that, yeah. you know and yeah he's... you still had some beautiful cinematography along the way in some films absolutely yeah. um in fact my gaffer tommy stern went after i was done with clint or clint was done with me tommy went on like a couple of uh, films after that i think he got nominated once or twice yeah. for stuff he'd done so uh, tell, tell me how you got involved in the goonies I'll tell you exactly. This is a pretty good story, too. I, I had to go to dailies of something else, and Spielberg was there, and I think Spielberg was touting me to down to uh, Richard. So we had that deal, and the next day, Richard calls me into to his office, and he said, I want to give you the script of The Goonies. I said, great. So I went right out in my car, and I read it. And an hour later, I came back in the, into the room and told Jenny, his, his secretary, I said, I love it. And Donner, hear me. And he says, he said, come in here, kid. He said, you read that script already and you love it? He said, welcome, Goonie. <laughs> Just like that. I got the picture. Pretty, pretty, pretty. Well, I don't, I don't think you know. I said, Donner was most very aware of your work before. Yeah, right. Well, yeah. And again, just to mark you, Donner would be a little bit ahead of the curve of Spielberg in terms of television. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. He put in so many television oh, yeah. with Twilight Zone right. and Get Smart. Right. I, mean, I know this because I've been watching recently, right? And, uh, yeah. and a lot of other stuff. I can't even think. I think, I think he, might, he didn't do any out of limits, really. but he did, sure. a, lot he of, he did yeah. a lot of genre yeah. stuff. Yeah. He yeah. earned Superman. He knew what he was doing. This, uh, yeah, and, and but oh, sorry, uh, you were going to say something. Actually, on Superman, we were flying up to look at some locations one time, and I said, to him, "Do you ever realize that if Superman looked like hell, flying, you're done?" And he says, "I didn't realize it until I went to the first screening." And then I thought, my God, because he hadn't seen a lot of it. If he, the first time Superman takes off, if it looks, you know, phony or bad or anything. If it looked like Superman 4. Right. He's, <laughs> he, he's done, you know, so it, it um, you well, know. That, well, that was a tagline, remember? Yeah. Do you believe a man can fly? Yeah, yeah right, right. But uh, so, but Donner Spielberg, they come close together in the, in, the, in the TV circle and Universal work, and then they're working together. I was asking you what the dynamic was like with the two. Well, it was real great. And and as I said before, the first two weeks of shooting, we'd get Spielberg would call me at night or I'd get a note to call Stephen and they called Dick too. And in the morning we'd come together and say, what did he say to you? You know, I said, well, he was criticizing this and it might've been a shadow that was, you know, 
And then you get Dick and stuff like that. So about after three weeks of this, you know, criticizing every morning, which Stephen does, um, Donner says, I'll fix this. So he says, when we get back to the stage, I'm creating a second unit. We're going to make Stephen the director. And we never heard from him again in like months. That was that was the last time. So he's got to be occupied with, you know, film and, and uh, whatever's going on. As a genius, he is, you know. A lot of effects in that movie as well that you had to work with. Uh, practical and other yes and children <laughs> yes and we were had all those tunnels you know and instead of having i usually had a painter or two <clears throat> on a job i had plasters in that so if i was hiding a light in you know part of the part of the mountain you'd have to plaster over it so you'd, instead of calling for painters you'd be calling for plasters which was probably i think i had two or three plasters to just to hide lights in the tunnel but it, it, it must be a huge challenge to do pretend dark. It's well, for that, and for the, what nearly half the over half the movie, I think. Well, actually, what happened was when they go into the tunnels, which that day, like the only day I ever had to reshoot because it was so black we couldn't see anything. So I had to reshoot that. But as you see the movie, when they get down below, they lit some lanterns, and I talked him into doing that. And then when the fratellis were coming across at the end, they had flashlights built where the back of them were open so the light would come back up into their faces so i did kind of create a couple of things there and donner went for it he said okay yeah but they're, they're also they look gorgeous yeah thank you thank you thank you <laughs> thank you for, yeah um as i said that's what you're doing you're you're creating wonderful pretend yes no, no one wants to really feel them in the dark they want to know that the illusion right. is there when i actually went into friends too i took handheld light you know little cameras that i could get the gals faces and i have two guys from my electrical crew just follow them around and the girls loved it. And it made them look good, too. So it kind of... Of course they did. <laughs> yeah. They're gorgeous gals. <laughs> but that, that's really interesting. Cause so that would have been a kind of innovative change, even within the structure of Friends and the style of it. Right. You brought a new style to it. Tell me right. more about that. Well, it's just that there was... They were around so much, and there was so much light in in sitcoms that usually when they were, you know, looking sideways or something like that, if you didn't fill them, you know, the, most of them have that, you know, so we just fill them like in. Like normal people. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so that would just help, you know. And and actually, when I, when one of my guys would hold up a light and the light was out, and and he didn't know it because you can't see it, the gals, they'd go up in their lines immediately. If they didn't have that light, they, they'd say, wait, 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 you know. That oh, they light. spot it pretty fast. Yeah. They, so is it kind of what they call the Marlena Dietrichs? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly. It was just like a little handheld I like, yeah. and you could you could get around practically anywhere with it. But isn't it so true though? If you if you don't have eyes working properly in any any filming at all, it, the rest of it's not going to work. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it's true. Would that be something that you'd really be looking out for all the time before you even get anything else right? Yeah, I try to. And you talk about eyes. Yeah, yeah they're really important. Very, very important. This was that was uh, kind of essential in a lot of stuff. And sometimes, you know, if you had one eye. Depending on the scene, stuff like that. As long as that eye was crisp, you know, you were you were doing good. Yeah. You were Emmy nominated for several episodes. Yeah, I got nominated for three. Um, and one was the wedding at the end where Phoebe got married. And I knew I was going to win for that. I had the speech. I had the whole shebang. <laughs> and nothing. So I'd been three years in a row or maybe every other year. I said, that's it. I'm never going again. But I never got nominated again. So. And what was it about those particular episodes, do you think? I think I think because of the Phoebe deal, it, it was an outside wedding. We put a lot of Christmas lights and stuff like that. 
and we had a lot of dry ice and stuff blowing up and it just looked good. It looked good. It looked crisp. It, it was, and yeah, it was the outside wedding. I think that was what really, yeah. that's why I thought I would get it for right. sure. <laughs> but still, as someone who creates really good work like that, a lot of the time you create work that only your fellow, your peers are going to spot. That's go, correct. Oh my God, what have you done there? Yeah. And yet people go with the fluffy stuff. Yep, that's right. So, you know, you're better than the Emmys, okay? Yeah, right. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but continue to, let's have talk about Mel Brooks. Uh, next week, Monday 11, sugar, yep. the Sugar Club, Spaceballs, and you uh, were pulled in by Mel Brooks to work on that. Tell me how that came about. My favorite story about that is when he was interviewing for uh, Spaceballs. I just finished City Heat, which was dark, it was black. And Mel brought me in and he said, I really like your work. And I think I'm going to give you this job. But kid, see those walls? I want to see them. I pay for those walls. I want to see them. So blast the light in there, which was why city, or, um, Space Walls was so bright. You know, was, I just had to do it. Was he thinking back to old Flash Gordons as opposed Could to be. Star Wars? Could films, be. Where you just see everything that's all flat. That's exactly what it was. It was just... That was kind it, of comedy, though, wasn't it? It, it was, was a comedy yeah, genre. Yeah. yeah. And it was, it was funny to work on it because he... You know, there, there was a script, but, you know, the, he and his cohort, Ronnie, I forget his last name, was a, one of his writer friends. They'd go over, you know, whatever lines they were, they'd say, well, let's change it. From the, they change everything right there and then. And it usually it usually worked most of the time with it. And I love to – Mel Brooks didn't like to take any any ideas from anybody else, which was what I love. So I used to always get guys to say – well, if you think that would help Mel, why don't you go tell him? <laughs> and he go berserk. Get him out of here. Get him off this set. I don't want this. Thing. Yeah. Well, considering he wrote, he had two many more credits on that. He did have a lot of other writers working with him at the start on those films. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. so. But and he's he's pretty much of a genius. But at 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 Spaceballs, he was kind of in a lull, and then the big play that went to New York came out after that. And, he became a huge hero. Yeah, he kind of started dusting off some of his old yeah, gems. Yeah, but was what was he like to, do, to as a director? He was great. Not able to take. He was great. Advice. I didn't have too many lighting challenges on it, but but it, camera challenges I had. I had. Mm -hmm. I think I always had two cameras, or one camera and a steady cam doing most of the stuff. Though, so we were pretty well covered in there, and and I didn't have to make it look that good. There was a couple scenes that we were, had to look pretty good, couple dark scenes, but. It was fun. So looking back, um, television or cinema, which do you think would you prefer? Oh, I, I think the films. I'm still a big film. That's why I got along with Wayne so well. That he's an incredible uh, film student. And just the, oh, I know. The, 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 yeah. I've learned a few things myself. Just, <laughs> just, just the stuff that I knew you know, that he'd bring up and about my career and stuff like that. I thought, you know, this guy knows what he's doing. So we had to. And you've got the book coming out hopefully early next year, late this year? Hopefully the end of this year, in around that, yeah. Well, how, how did you find the process of talking about yourself for the book? And did it, it reignite old memories? Or? It totally reignited old memories. And he knew stuff about me that I had forgotten. So, you know, and I got, you know, would get on stories and and he'd have a rough time getting me off Skype, you know. <laughs> just keep talking. <laughs> it was really interesting yeah. to, to see all that stuff come back up. Nick's the kind of subject you want, though. You know what I mean? He's, he's great stories. He's he's willing and open to talk, which is just yeah. a dream for me as a as a co-author. You know, just to 
And did you find so obviously you didn't find it hard to get the stories out of him, but obviously I get the impression Nick's quite modest. <laughs> yeah, I thought you like you're not in the room here, Nick. But uh, and that helps, I think. <laughs> well, you see, a, I'm, a I'm ready to call him a genius. I don't know how <laughs> yeah, yeah he's him. been quite he's been quiet about that. <laughs> but I think he agrees with you. <laughs> yeah, actually. So the, the book for you, what, what approach and structure are you gonna go with this volume on? Um it's it, it's Q and A is a big thing. Mm-hmm. Like what we're doing here is just talking about the movies, going into each. Now I'm, I'm doing each one, so it's going to yeah, be a, a, a great, com- comprehensive that's, that's, uh, book. You know what that's I mean? What I'd so we're, we're starting at the very beginning and going right up to, to Friends and everything in between. So um, every every film is is covered in next. He even has my football career in there. Yeah, you know? oh, very good. <laughs> yeah, oh, we're doing it. It's you know stopping short of a biography here. You know, but it's um. But then for, for you, what is one of the more interesting things that we haven't covered that Nick has forgotten about because he's got so much to remember <laughs> that for. You uh, talking to, to Nick about his career, and I'm talking about the early, early camera days as well. Is yeah, absolutely. Now? Well, it, every every part of Nick's career is of interest to me, and like I say, the, the book has kind of taken this film history kind of angle. So you know, when you start out with Hitchcock and Altman and these guys, it's it's crucial that you, you cover them. You know what I mean? As as small as your work may have been on on Family Plot, the fact that you've worked with Hitchcock is, is just I got amazing. to work with Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah, we, we, I was going to say we forgot to cover Hitchcock. Would you like a short um, story? I'd it? love a Hitchcock short story. Okay, here's the story. I was a pretty hot opera, uh, camera operator in Hollywood. So I get a call from his AD and he said, we're letting our camera operator go, and who was a very good camera operator. But there was something being lost between Hitchcock, the director of photography, and the camera operator. So he said, we're letting him go. Could you come in and audition for Mr. Hitchcock? You know, as a camera operator, which is not, you don't do that. But for Hitchcock, I said, I'll be there in a flash. So I get in there the next morning. We're, uh, it was family pot, I believe, and we're doing a bunch of running shop, shots up in the mountains and stuff like that. And I would, Hitchcock was sitting in a, a Lincoln Continental, and the director of photography would go over to him. His name was Lenny South. And Hitchcock would say, Lenny, I would like a close up with the top line on top of the head. And the bottom line, just above the air bowl. Well, this is what the other camera operator wasn't hearing. But I would go up and I would listen to see what Hitchcock said. Then I know exactly what to do. So I was getting along real good. And you had to dress, too, for Hitchcock. You had okay. to, you didn't have to have a tie, but you had to have a coat and a nice, which I, you know, I was a Levi's guy, you know. So I dressed up. I did a part and all that stuff. And I thought, Jesus, you know, this is amazing. So the last shot of the day, the AD said, there's a car coming down. And he's going to go off this cliff. I said, well, where's the other cameras? <laughs> You're it. Hitchcock, <laughs> Hitchcock hires what he thinks is the best. And you better get it. Yeah, you better get it. So I'm all ready to go. And I'm thinking, Jesus, what if I miss this shot? And now I hadn't said a word to Hitchcock. And he hadn't said a word to me all day. I'm just getting ready to go. And I hear this seat chair pull up right next to me like this. And I hear the shuffling of feet. This little old man sits down, and just before we get ready to roll, he says, I presume your machine is functioning properly. I swear <laughs> to God. That's what he said. I presume your machine is func- functioning properly. In other words, you better not screw this up. And when I finished the shot, I got the shot. He never said a word to me. He just got up and left. And I said to the AD, he, I said, he didn't see. He says, he knows, by the way, that lens moves, whether you got it or not. Just so he was, he was that. Really yeah. into it, so old yeah. school. Yeah, yeah, exactly. He never yeah. said a word. He just got up and shuffled away afterwards. Your machine. <laughs> I presume your machine is functioning properly. Oh, geez, you better. 
So you know, I heard he was pretty strong on budget. Um, it's interesting that he made that film. He made the film quite cheaply, and he again he got into the goo of working with TV crews through Psycho. Yeah. Uh-huh. And he kind of didn't he maintain a bit with that film as well. He did, yeah. I watched yeah. it last year, and and it's it's an interesting failure. The Psycho. Psycho. No family plot. Oh, oh family plot. Yeah, it, it, there's some a lot of lovely stuff in it. But uh, <clears> was it, and you came in for to write much. I I got offered the picture after that. And I couldn't take. It. I was starting a picture about three days down. So I couldn't take it, but I, okay. at least I got to, the reason I was there was to work with him. You know, it's just, I just wanted to see what it was like. Do you think you would have survived the movie? I don't know. <laughs> I might not have. Yeah. And John Batum, how did you find working with John Batum? He's he a was, filmmaker I really like. He was really great. Um, He's kind of forgotten now, wasn't he? he the, the, well, what happened was, is like a lot of people, he, he skyrocketed. And actually, my son did a couple of TV shows with him lately. He's still still working. Oh, good. And yeah, and um, I had a I had a real nice time with him. He was, he knew what he was doing. He was, yeah, he did. He did went right to the top at the start, but then he kind of peaked out. And short circuit was that an interesting one to work on? Was there any particular stories from that? Um, not really a particular story, other than the damn robot. The robot. <laughs> what happened was we had five of those robots. You know, one for close ups, yeah. one for speed. It would go fast. One, you know, and the the number one. Number five, you know, the theme was number five is alive. The number one most expensive one that we had all tuned up for close-ups and stuff like that, with the battery unhooked, went right off the tailgate of a car or a truck and crashed. And the the guy says, it's impossible that this happened because the battery was not. (laughs) So number five was alive and crashed. (laughs) Well, it beats all those exorcists and omen stories <laughs> yeah. where everyone's dropping like flies because yeah. they're dealing with the devil. Yeah. yeah. Well, this For man sure. worked on the exorcist as well. Exorcist yeah. too. Oh, how did you find Freakin? Uh, it wasn't Freakin. It was... Borman. Oh, sorry. Borman. Sorry, yeah. John Borman, yeah. of course. Borman. It was an interesting crossover because Bert got to work with Borman on Deliverance. Right, so, right. You know, Right. And, Vil- and Vilmos worked with right. Um, that's I, I, I like that movie, I have to say. It's a, guilt, it's a guilty pleasure yeah. of mine. The I do exorcism. think John Borman is wonderfully bonkers, and I really like that about him. He absolutely is. Yeah. In fact, he asked me, I was doing Close Encounters, and he asked me to fly to New York for an interview, and I thought I was hot stuff at the time. I said, I'm not flying to New York for an interview. I want a little time off, and he hired me just because I said that, <laughs> I guess. And how did you find working with John? He was great. He was great. He was very knowledgeable, but you could kind of see the movie wasn't wasn't going that great. You know, and we had uh, Richard Burton in it also. And at the time, I was not a new camera operator, but with Richard Burton, you didn't want to screw up. So I would wear long sleeve shirts because I'd get to shaking. <laughs> well, you know, because he'd say, you know, he was a pretty good drinker. And if we didn't get the shot, he said, God, boys, get the, you know. And so I was like, you know, so I just pray I'd get the yeah. damn thing. But I remember dressing in long sleeve shirts so he wouldn't check it. <laughs> and Freaker shot that movie as well. Yeah. Which is right, right. very definitive of his style. Freaker used to use a lot of uh, mirrors and yeah. kind of shapes within his frames. Which lots of mirrors. Yeah. yeah. Freaker was, a, yeah, lots of mirrors. Very strange film. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And how did you find Burton other than being scared? Um, he seemed okay, except, um, you know, he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to do it more than once or twice. And then when he came up, we did some up in, uh, Arizona, the, the last part of it, I believe. And he would start drinking, you know, and I overheard him talking one time. He says, I, I think I'm an alcoholic. He says, you know, the, the first couple drinks, I'm fabulous. The next couple drinks, I'm starting to go downhill. 
by my fifth and drink, I'm a total jerk. He said, I go after anybody, <laughs> you know. So at least he, he understood. By yeah, that. right. <laughs> yeah. Nick, thank you so much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Wayne, thank you so much. It's, no it's been a pleasure for me. I, I love it. I'll probably get to think of a million questions after you've gone oh, Of now. course, of course. That's the way it was. Thank you so much. And thank you out there for listening. And make sure you check out those dates. I'm sure they're going to be on the same page. So you can check them out again. And please go and see Nick and Wayne wherever they're going to be. Thank you very much. Thank you.